Welcome to Bill and Tony's Excellent Adventure in Music. Here are your hosts, Bill Fraser and Tony Sartu. Welcome to Bill and Tony's Excellent Adventure in Music. I'm Bill. And I'm Tony. And we're going to explore our love for music by sharing some facts and our thoughts about what I consider to be some of the best albums from the most recent Rolling Stone Top 500 album list. And today's album is Let It Bleed by the Rolling Stones. Let It Bleed was released on November 28th of 1969 and has sold over 20 million copies worldwide. It was ranked number 32 on Rolling Stone's Top 500 in both 2003 and 2012, but dropped to number 41 on the 2020 list. And those voters are crazy. It should not be going down. Right? This album is amazing, but I guess we can talk about that in a little bit. So what's your personal history with this, Bill? So I've always kind of considered myself a Rolling Stones fan. I think people generally feel like they're either a Rolling Stones or a Beatles fan, and I probably would have put myself in the category of Rolling Stones fan. And the 80s Start Me Up, Hang Fire, Waiting on a Friend songs on that Tattoo You album were the real introduction to me to the Stones. And I heard a lot of their famous hits, but I don't really think I'd listened to any of the early albums end to end. So for me... I'm kind of the opposite. So I was never a Stones fan either. And frankly, I kind of don't like Tattoo You and stuff like that that came after that. Um, but I did have the, what was it called? Hot Rocks, the two yeah. CD set. And so I do know the greatest hits and I know them pretty much inside and out. So I loved Hot Rocks, listened to Hot Rocks, but ne had never listened to this album or really any Rolling Stones album at all front to back. So, all right. So then there we go. So that's our history with Let It Bleed. So why don't we start talking about the musical context, social context, and I'll start off by talking about the year and albums. The number one album to start the year was the White Album by the Beatles. And the White Album alternated at the top with Glenn Campbell's Wichita Lineman and Blood, Sweat and Tears throughout the spring. Then for most of the summer, the charts were dominated by the Hair soundtrack. And then in August, Blood, Sweat, and Tears returned to the top. Johnny Cash at San Quentin and Creedence Clearwater Revival were uh, the top sellers in the early fall. And then Abbey Road took over in November and stayed at number one for eight weeks until the very last week in 1969. Led Zeppelin II came out and was number one to end the year. So some other notable albums that year were um, Abbey Road, which we talked about. But the Beatles also released Yellow Submarine that year. Uh, in addition to Led Zeppelin II, which came out at the end of the year, Led Zeppelin I debuted earlier in 1969. The Velvet Underground also debuted that year. The Who came out with Tommy, and the Stooges, led by Iggy Pop, came out with their big record. And you've got Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. You've got Hot Buttered Soul by Isaac Hayes. There's Kick Out the Jams by MC5, which I am not a fan of even a little bit. And then there is the oddest entry into the Rolling Stone list. It is an album that didn't make it into the 2020 list. And frankly, it was really impossible to even find because it's not streaming anywhere. Tony, it's Captain Beefheart and his magic band and the album Trout Mask Replica. It's just awful. So how, if it was that bad and it's that unavailable, how did it even stay on the list into 2012? It was number 60 in 2012. Come on. Number 60. 
Rolling Stone, please. Number 58 in 2003. That's just terrible. That's a terrible take. It's very experimental rock. It's really odd. Well, I don't think it's necessarily quite that bad, but you know what the top seller was that year? That's right. It was Inagata de Vida, baby. That is absolutely priceless. That To me, that the fact that that was the top selling album that year is makes me almost want to check it out, but it's it's like a punchline to me. Like I hear those words and I think it's a joke. I can't hear the title without hearing like a cheesy lead vocalist singing it. Well then, that's the year in music. So what else was going on in the world in 1969? 1969 was crazy. You start the year off with the Jets winning the Super Bowl. <laughs> Super Bowl three. Nixon's inaugurated as president. The Beatles have their last concert in public, the rooftop concert. The Boeing 747 makes its debut. Mickey Mantle retires. Vietnam is still going on. It's been going on for 20 years. The Cuyahoga River catches fire. And you've wow. got Randy Newman's song, Burn On, and R.E.M. song, Cuyahoga, that memorialize that. You've got the terrible events at the Stonewall Inn and the raid that happened and the riots that were subsequent to that. Ted Kennedy and Chappaquiddick, Marion Kopechny dies in the, the car accident. Apollo 11 lands on the moon. Sharon Tate is murdered. Woodstock, the Mets win the World Series. The Chicago 7 trial, the Brady Bunch, Monty Python, Sesame Street, they all debut. You've got the first message on ARPANET and you've got the first ATM machine. It's absolutely a crazy time to be alive. And it's really also a time where the world is starting to become a lot darker and a lot less peace and love. All right. Well, that, that's the year in music, the year in the world. So why don't we talk about what was happening with the Stones? So in 1969, we had the lineup that had Brian Jones leading the band. But of course, you had Mick and Keith and Bill Wyman on bass and Charlie Watts on drums. So that was the original Rolling Stones lineup. And just as a reminder, if you remember from our uh, Hunky Dory pod, that group was stolen from another band called Little Boy Blue and the Blue Boys. Brian, I can't believe that Little Boy Blue and the Blue Boys has made two appearances on our podcast. Right. So, And that's almost another comical name. I mean... Are you trying to be a blues band by calling by saying blue three times in your name? It's just silly. But but, you know, so Brian Jones, as we talked about, stole Mick and Keith from that band and created the Rolling Stones. And now they're leading up. They just had done uh, Beggar's Banquet. Was that the previous album? Beggar's yep. Banquet in 1968. Yep. Yep. Now they're coming up to do Let It Bleed. And here we are in 1969. So it's 1969 and Brian Jones is really struggling with drugs and drinking and he's really flaking out on the band and Mick and Keith finally decide they've had enough and they pull him aside and they fire Brian Jones from the band. This is mid recording of the album. Wow. And what happens with Brian Jones is he continues to devolve and he actually winds up dying two weeks after Let It Bleed is dropped as an album. They find him dead in his swimming pool at the age of 27, and he Jeez. only recorded two tracks on the album. Who do they wind up replacing Brian Jones with? Well, let's go back to our last pod when we talked about Mick Taylor replacing Peter Green in John Mayhall in the Blues Breakers. Well, Mick Taylor gets tapped on the shoulder to join the Rolling Stones. It is absolutely 
crazy the moving pieces of guitarists and musicians during this period of time. You know, and it's not just, I mean, so the moving pieces and the intertwined histories is interesting, of course. And then, you know, you throw in the Clapton of it all. But how, the fact that all these, you know, young English guys were so into the blues is amazing and, and not just into it, but really good at it. So And crazy guitarists. I mean, yeah. like all time great type. So that covers the artist's background and the lead into the album. So, Tony, why don't you tell us a little bit about the making of the album and the facts around that? All right. So we went through the lineup. You know, it's the uh, Brian Jones and Mick and Keith and Bill and Charlie. So the only other thing that I'll add is that the album was produced by a guy named Jimmy Miller, and it was produced at Olympic Studios. So it's not the Jimmy Miller we know, is it? No, it's not Jimmy Miller, nor is it his brother, Johnny Miller. Um, but it's Jimmy Miller. And those two facts about Olympic Studio and Jimmy Miller, we'll talk about a little bit in uh, later on in the show. So tell me about the art. This is an absolute masterpiece of an album cover. And it's confirmed as art because it's actually a part of the MoMA's collection now. Really? But interestingly enough, Rolling Stone magazine actually completely panned the album cover when it initially came out. They called it the crummiest cover art since Flowers with a credit sheet that looks like it was designed by the U.S. government printing office, all courtesy of the inflated Robert Brownjohn. Wait, so you're telling me that the same publication that had Captain Beefheart as the number 59 album of all time also thought that this was absolute garbage yep pretty much all right i'm glad that these guys are you know what we're using as our source material so of course they come back to it years later and it's a completely different story they wax poetic about what an artistic masterpiece the album cover is rolling stone magazine's thoughts aside it was incredibly creative and iconic what you see looking at the album cover is a phonograph with a stack of items on the changer and it actually comes from the original working title of the album, which was Automatic Changer. You've got a movie reel that says Stones, Let It Bleed. There's a clock. There's a bicycle tire. There's a cake on top. And then on top of that, little grinning figurines of the Rolling Stones, including Brian Jones. Well, this does bring me back because it, I think back to my you know crappy old record player and how you used to stack up. I don't think I really stacked up lps but definitely stacking up 45s and then you know they would just drop and then the next one would play yep yeah and just drop and drop and drop yeah no exactly that's exactly the way it used to work and the fact that they've got all those things in the automatic changer mm -hmm. it's really kind of neat all right so tony why don't we move into our something you might not know section and i am really looking forward to hearing a little bit more about olympic studios so why don't you kick it off all right yeah so olympic studios which i mentioned before you know in our Earlier shows, we've talked about some of the other iconic studios like Hansen Berlin, and we talked about Trident, and we talked about the record plant in Sausalito. So Olympic Studios is right on par with those guys as far as their historical significance. Olympic opened up in 1906. 1906 is like over 115 years ago. It opened up as a community theater, and it was also a dance hall. In 1910, it became a cinema, and then in the 20s, it was a home for theatrical productions. And this isn't just your local community theater now. You've got folks like John Gilgood, Charles Lawton, and Claude Rains, who were part of the companies that put on shows 
at this theater, which would later be. Become... Those are some big time stars at the time. Seriously. Though, yeah. That's not just uh, some randos. So um, in 1930, it became a movie theater again, and it was a movie theater into the sixties when it was transformed into a recording studio and they were doing things like TV commercials there, but then they decided to start recording music. And in 1966, and one of the first bands to start recording there was the Rolling Stones. And the reason why Olympic was such a desired place to record was its history as a theater. And back then, theaters had live orchestras and orchestras would play along with the performance. So the Olympic Studios had a pit that could accommodate a 70-piece orchestra. And when you think about songs like You Can't Always Get What You Want, and with you know the big choir and just the big sound, you definitely need a place where you can fit a bunch of people and a bunch of instruments to uh, to make that music and capture all of that. So the Stones recorded Beggar's Banquet there, which we talked about before, and recorded the next four albums there, including Beggar's Banquet. So they did that four-album run of Beggar's Banquet, Let It Bleed, Sticky Fingers, and Exile in Maine, all at Olympic? All four. And the Stones were really critical to that studio getting launched. In fact, Mick Jagger is credited with doing a lot of the interior design in the studio. So they were, you know, really among the first people and the most important people there. And the work that they did there is is iconic. So some other folks that recorded there, you had the Beatles do they did All You Need Is Love there. The Who did Who's Next and Who Are You? The whole album's there. And one that totally makes perfect sense is Queen. Queen used to record at Trident Studios, which we talked about in an earlier show, and they moved to Olympic to do A Night at the Opera. And you know what song's on A Night at the Opera? I do. Yeah. but Bohemian Rhapsody. But I think they did the main recording at a farmhouse at some residential studio. I think it was in Wales. Yeah, that that I do recall that from the movie. Um, but You've got A Night at the Opera featuring Bohemian Rhapsody, and then you've got the soundtrack to Jesus Christ Superstar and the Rocky Horror Picture Show. So, again, big... You know, I wouldn't have connected Jesus Christ Superstar as an album that was recorded in London. That's crazy. I really would have thought that was recorded in the U.S. Sure. But then when you think about, you know, probably that studio was perfect to do what they needed to do, right? Yeah, I guess it makes a lot of sense. So then over the years, you had other folks record there like Bowie and B.B. King, Pink Floyd, Barbara Streisand, Duran Duran, Spice Girls, Oasis, and Prince. Wow. So um, definitely it was an in-demand place and the best of the best wanted to record there. The last band to record there was U2 with their album No Line on the Horizon. And since then, it has returned to its roots as a movie theater. Well, that was an awesome something you didn't know. And I didn't know most of that. So thank you for sharing that. All right, so I'm going to go in a little different direction. And I will have a few something you didn't know kind of sprinkled in along the way, along with some cool facts. And then I'm going to try to hit you at the end with something you haven't heard before. So let's start with the Gimme Shelter film documentary, which was a film made by brothers Albert and David Maysells. It was released at the Cannes Film Festival, and it was a film that captured a 30-day period of time that the Rolling Stones were touring in the U.S. leading up to their concert, the free concert in Altamont, California. Where is Altamont, actually? So Altamont is in the Bay Area. It's near San Francisco. 
So one of the interesting facts is there was a young worker on that film crew that would later go on to become very famous, and his name was George Lucas. So before he was doing Star Wars, he was following the Rolling Stones around the U.S., filming them on tour. So the film really chronicles the period of time, the 30 days leading up to the December 6, 1969 free concert at Altamont Speedway. And they wanted to do this concert. They had an idea of doing a West Coast version of Woodstock. And it's not really clear on whose idea it was, whether it was theirs, whether it was the Grateful Dead, whether it was Jefferson Airplanes. But ultimately, you had this collection of bands, including the Grateful Dead, Jefferson Airplane, Santana, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, and the Flying Burrito Brothers all come together to do this free concert. And it was just horribly unorganized. They didn't even have the concert venue worked out until 48 hours prior to the start of the concert. And really what ensues is mayhem. You see the concert, you see what's going on in the concert, and it devolves over the period of time that they show in the documentary. Really, the crux of the problem that occurred with the concert is who was providing the security. So some contingent from either Grateful Dead or Jefferson Airplane recommended to the management of the Rolling Stones that, hey, you know, we've used the Hells Angels before as security, and it's worked out pretty well. So the bands agree that they're going to ask the Hells Angels to be security for the concert. So what do these brainiacs offer the Hells Angels? Beer. (laughs) They decide to pay the Hells Angels in beer, $500 worth of beer, to sit on the stage and to just try to keep the peace. Brilliant. So what proceeds to play out over the course of the day is just an escalation of violence, ultimately culminating in the murder of a young man who was attending the concert. And all of it is on film. What you see is graphic and it's brutal and it's just hard to watch. You see Hell's Angels getting into it with attendees. At one point, the lead singer for Jefferson Airplane goes down into the crowd and tries to break up a fight between one of the Hell's Angels and a concert goer, and he gets knocked out. It's absolutely insane. The film cuts to the Grateful Dead arriving on their helicopter, and they're talking to the drummer from Santana, and he's telling Jerry Garcia what happened to their friend Marty and the Grateful Dead just jump right back on their helicopter and get out. He's out. I don't remember seeing it in the film, but at some point the Stones arrive on helicopter and Mick Jagger actually gets punched in the face by one of the concert goers getting off the helicopter. Well, if there's any question about who's cooler, the dead, man, they suck. Screw the dead. Uh, No offense to our, any dead heads we have out there. The dead suck and Mick is the man. So the documentary shows the Stones going on stage, and really what you see is you see a very different Rolling Stones than what you saw at the beginning of the film over that 30-day continuum. You see a really visibly anxious Mick Jagger on stage, interesting, really trying to calm the crowd. Things continue to ratchet up, and eventually what you see on the film is a young man starting to approach the stage. And one of the problems with the setup for Altamont Speedway when they set up this concert is it's really, the stage is set up kind of in a pit. So it's really embedded inside of the crowd and it's not really good separation and protection for the band. So you see a young man approaching the stage and his name was Meredith Hunter. And what winds up happening is an altercation and one of the Hells Angels pulls a knife and stabs and kills Meredith Hunter. Jesus. And it's all on film. 
It's absolutely brutal. So, do you, and sorry to put you on the spot, but what happened with, I mean, you've got a murder on film. I mean, did that guy go away? So he did not. He was actually prosecuted for murder, but he was acquitted and acquitted on the basis of self-defense. Supposedly, Meredith Hunter pulled a gun, mm-hmm. but everything that I've read is that he pulled that gun because he was being attacked by the Hells Angels and he was trying to defend himself right. Right. and winds up getting killed in the bargain. Ultimately, I don't know what happened or what didn't happen, but what you can see in the video is a young man being stabbed to death, and it is brutal. Jeez. Unbelievable. So you've got an interesting parallel with the World concert that happened recently, mm-hmm. but the main difference is today everybody's got a camera in their pocket, in their phone. And instead of a film that comes out a year later, it's all being streamed on social media in real time. So for Altamont, all you had was the Gimme Shelter film, which was a year later. And now the Library of Congress, after curating film, is just releasing some home movies that were taken. And it's actually on their website. And I'll put a link to that in the show description. So those were all things that I kind of didn't know, but here's my kind of big finish. Tony, do you know the song American Pie by Don McLean? Yeah. Okay. What comes to mind when you think of that song? Well, I mean, if you're going to ask me, I'm going to say that it had previously been the longest number one song of all time until Taylor Swift's All Too Well, Taylor's version, 10 minute version came out. Leave it to you to bring it oh, back is there, to Taylor is Swift. Is there something else? <laughs> yes. Oh, okay. So obviously the song talks all about the day that music died where yeah. Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, and the Big Bopper died in the plane crash. But did you know that the song actually has mention of the Altamont concert? Really? And that is a part of the inspiration for the back end of the song. If you go directly to the fifth verse, mm-hmm. oh, and there we were all in one place, a generation lost in space with no time left to start again. So come on, Jack be nimble, Jack be quick. Jack Flash oh, wow. sat on a candlestick because fire is the devil's only friend. Oh, and as I watched him on the stage, my hands were clenched in fists of rage. No angel born in hell could break that Satan's spell. And as the flames climbed high into the night to light the sacrificial rite, I saw Satan laughing with delight the day the music died. Interesting. You know, so I mean, so some of the references there, you know, you've got obviously Jack Flash. But I wonder, is like the candlestick reference to, you know, Bay Area and Candlestick Park? Yeah, it was actually. Uh, Don McLean released the notes to the writing of the song not long ago, and it definitely has a tie to Altamont and specifically that concert. Wow. Yeah, well, definitely something I didn't know. You uh, surprised me. So thanks for that. Why don't we then pick things up and start talking about the album? So Let It Bleed is a bleak album. It is an album written with difficult times on the horizon, difficult times in process and it resonated in 1969 and it resonates today it fits perfectly with the challenges and the struggles and the things that are going on today just like it did back in 1969 yeah and it i mean right from the get it's uh gimme shelter nothing i mean every lyric every wail uh, just the whole vibe of it is is dirty it's sweaty it's violent it's almost evil and 
the gimme shelter captures all of that and it definitely is you know that pain murder war it's talking about if not directly vietnam it's talking about just the whole environment you know uh, racial war class war vietnam war oh a storm is threatening my very life today yeah yeah very much so and the thing that makes this song stand out so much is the amazing vocals not the mick jagger vocals the vocals from mary clayton oh yeah I don't think the song would be as iconic in the song that it is without her vocals in it. Mm-hmm. The story of Mary Clayton and how she actually sang on that song could have been actually part of the something you didn't know because I didn't know it personally. But the band reached out to Mary Clayton in the middle of the night. They asked her to come and record vocals on the track. She's a few months pregnant. She goes over to Olympic Studios. The door is this big, heavy door. She strains and pulls it open. She goes in, there's this grueling recording session, and she gives everything she possibly can, and you can hear it on the vocals. And it's a really sad story because the next day she winds up having a miscarriage, and it's a really horrible, sad story. Yeah, and you know, like you said, it was in the middle of the night. She shows up in her pajamas and rollers in her hair, and that strain of singing because, you know, most of her vocals are you know, they're powerful, they're amazing, but they're straight in her wheelhouse. But then she kicks it up a notch about three minutes into the song. And she's, that's where she's absolutely wailing. And and you can hear it. It's like she hits a whole nother level, a whole nother level. And, and I didn't notice this until just today when I was re-listening to this and had, I was doing a little research that right around the three minute mark, not meant to be captured, uh, on tape, you actually hear Mick in the background because he's just in the studio and he gives in the background a, a woo because he's like, holy crap, you really killed it. So if you check it out at the three minute mark, um, you hear Mick just b- being amazed by what Mary Clayton's doing there. So on the Mary Clayton front, something else that, you know, all that aside, she, she as amazing as she was, she wasn't even the first choice. They actually called somebody else first. Yeah. I mean, how is she the second choice? Can you really imagine that song being sung by someone else? I mean, well, no offense. So maybe Bonnie, Bonnie Bramlett, maybe she's awesome. You know, I, 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 you know, I'd be curious, but no, to answer your question, I can't imagine anybody else doing that and makes you wonder like, what would the impact of this song be? Would it, you know, how would it that change if Bonnie, Bonnie Bramlett's husband hadn't said, no, you can't go do that? All right. So that's track one. And it is a heck of a way to start off an album. Oh. And you go straight from Gimme Shelter to Love in Vain, the redo of the Robert Johnson classic. And it's a great take. It's a really highly produced take versus the original, which is really just Robert Johnson on a guitar. Yeah, a very grainy yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. It's a lot more stripped down. It's just Robert Johnson telling a story. Yeah, no, I love Love in Vain. That's a great track. So what's next? I don't have the album in order. Country Honk is up next. Oh, Country, Honk. Country Honk is a great track. Most people probably know it best as Honky Tonk Women, which they released as a single, but they released a country version of it, Country Honk, on Let It Bleed. And personally, I like this version so much better. You get this wonderful country guitar and just a great vibe to the song. I love Country Honk. As a matter of fact, so 
I, we talked about how I'd never listened to this album. So when I was listening to this, uh, to, to do my research, I thought that I was listening to some, Oh, this must be some remastered version. And they put on this, you know, different version of honky tonk women, but why are they calling it country honk? I didn't realize at all, you know, that they hadn't released honky tonk women. Actually, I don't think they released it on any album, right? Wasn't it just as, as a single, right? Yep. Yeah, so so Honky Tonk Women doesn't uh, exist on any album, but Country Honk is just, in my mind, so much better. I think Honky Tonk Women is them trying, it, it seems like them trying to do something, and Country Honk feels more natural and real. Yeah, I agree. It definitely feels like the way the song mm-hmm. should be played. Yeah. So next up is Live With Me, and it's one of the two Mick Taylor tracks on the album. Yeah, oh, so Mick is Mick Taylor's doing uh, the lead? No, Keith does pretty much all of the lead parts. Mick Taylor actually did some of the overdubs. Oh, okay. So the song's lyrics are really interesting. I have nasty habits. I take tea at three. That's sacrilege <laughs> for a good Londoner. And it's actually cited as one of the reasons why the London Bach Choir, well, maybe not the T at three, but just the general lyrics of the song, didn't want to be cited on you can't always get what you want as a performing artist. Interesting. All right. So then next is the title track, Let It Bleed. I really have grown to like Let It Bleed. I didn't appreciate it when I first was listening to it, but as we've been listening to this album over and over again over the past couple of weeks, it's really an excellent track and we all need someone we can lean on yeah. and if you want it you can lean on me yep. and it closes out side one and you know we've talked a lot about sides so you know you have the album opening with gimme shelter and you end it with let it bleed and the lean on me bit again i don't think that that's an accident i think no it's really not and then you open side two and what do you have mm-hmm. the dark midnight rambler the song is really thematically tied to the Boston Strangler, and it's a really dark song. You go from Gimme Shelter as the lead track on side one, closing out with Let It Bleed, yeah, and, and we, then Midnight Rambler as the start to side two. Exactly. We, you know, we talked about how Gimme Shelter is kind of sweaty and dirty and, and grimy, and gosh, Midnight Rambler, if Gimme Shelter sounded a little evil midnight rambler it sounds like it could be like you could have that in a movie that harmonica and guitar playing in and have you know satan you know making his first appearance on film to that song and it's really interesting because you've got a murder going on in this song and i was listening to abbey road the other day and you've got maxwell Silverhammer, which is just this polar opposite of a song you, you mean the, the, the happy, funny, murderous Maxwell? Versus the dirty, grimy, <laughs> satanic Midnight Rambler, yeah. Yeah. And, and maybe that's the difference between the Stones and the Beatles. All right, so then we go to You Got the Silver. You Got the Silver is just such a, a wonderful track. The only track on the album that makes not the lead singer. It's what, Keith's first? Keith's first. Keith had never sang lead until this song. And, he, and, and oh, I'm sorry to interrupt and you. He was a choir boy. Was he really? Yeah, he was. Wow. So he actually could sing. Oh, and he was a Boy and, Scout too. He was a Boy Scout and a choir boy. <laughs> oh, that's, that's funny. So what's amazing to me about this song is that it's one of those where the band didn't know how popular it was. Apparently they rarely if ever played this thing live for decades 
until the 90s. I think it was the Steel Wheels tour where they started playing it. And the crowd reaction was so joyous and exuberant. It's now become a staple. But could you imagine you're the Stones, you've got this song and you just never play it because you didn't think anyone really cared for it? And imagine when the band originally recorded this, they actually recorded a version with Mick Jagger. And then they decide to go with the Keith Richards version. There's just odd stuff going on with this, but it it works. It's a great track. So that brings us to everyone's favorite, Monkey Man. The piano entry on that song and the slide guitar, that's my go-to track. I absolutely love that track. You know, I've come around on Monkey Man as I've been listening to this album more. And the way I appreciate the song is when I completely ignore the lyrics and just listen to the music. And then I say, yeah, Monkey Man works for me. And as long as I don't have to listen to the nonsensical lyrics, I'm all right. So that brings us to... But but you've got a few interesting pieces of lyric in there. So I'm going to disagree with you there. So there's two places for me. The very beginning... I'm a flea bit peanut monkey and all my friends are junkies. That's not really true. Kind of satirizes how the band is perceived as a bunch of derelict drug addicts. And then you go later in the song. Well, I hope we're not too messianic or a trifle too satanic, but we'd love to play the blues. That is the Rolling Stones. There could not be a truer statement. All right. Well, you know what? I hadn't caught that and maybe I'll have to re-listen and reconsider. Maybe it'll move up in my rankings when we do the draft. I don't know. Maybe I should have thought my strategy out a little better. I shouldn't be selling you on this song. (laughs) All right. So now we close out with the last song on the album, You Can't Always Get What You Want. So you get, what, just about a full minute of just the choir, and then the music comes in. This song, closing out the album, you know, we talked about Gimme Shelter starting the album and Midnight Rambler on the start of side two, but Mm -hmm. this closing the album is basically saying, well, it might be bleak times and you might not always get what you want, but if you try sometimes, you might just find you get what you need. It's a great message to close out the album. It is an absolute masterpiece. It is their magnum opus. Yeah, it's it's so fantastic. And what I found interesting about this one was that Charlie Watts, rest in peace, fantastic drummer. He couldn't play the drums for this song. That is insane. And I have no knowledge of what it takes to play drums, so I'm not judging anybody. But I can't imagine a drummer of his caliber couldn't get the groove for this. And they had to bring in the producer, Jimmy Miller, to come in and sub in for Charlie because he just couldn't get it. So uh, I do want to listen back and see, you know, wh- how does it sound different? Does it sound different? Is it something that someone like me can pick up? I never would have known that just listening to it. I will definitely take another listen. All right. So that wraps up our review of the songs. So why don't we head into the draft? So before we do this week's draft, Bill, do you want to remind us what the draft is and then maybe tell us how we did at the end of the last one. So we'll close out last week's results here on the pod. Right. And just a reminder of what our song draft is. Our song draft is Tony and I alternating picks. We're going to pick a roster of songs, a little team of songs, if you will. At the end of the episode, we'll recap the rosters. We will put 
a link in the episode description for the podcast, and we'll ask the listeners to vote. Each week we'll reveal the results. One of us will win, one of us will lose. Tony thinks he's going to win. I think I'm going to win. And by voting, you get to decide the outcome. So I'm shocked. I don't know. I I don't see the results that you're looking at, but just in the personal responses that I'm getting in my DM. Oh, for goodness sake. Really? No, I'm getting crushed. And I can't, I don't understand how I'm getting crushed when. Come on, dude, you got to bring out the vote. I must not be bringing out the vote because I think definitely the last one, no offense. I think I destroyed you. And yet everyone's telling me I voted for no way. Oh man. All right. So, so why don't we hear it? What are the results? All right. Let me refresh and let's see what we have here. Oh, look at this, Tony. I am very happy to tell you that you lost again. Am I 0 and 3? You are 0 for 3. Jesus. So the chain was the most popular song, but most of the rest of the songs were on my list of songs. Wow. So that's probably where you went wrong. I don't know what to say. The other ones I knew I lost you to. Go Your Own Way, Don't Stop, and Dreams had as many votes as the chain. Jeez. All right. Well, then I guess... I guess I got to amp up my game. I need to do better scouting. I need to maybe dive into the analytics a little bit more. I don't know. Shoot. Even you make love and fun. Got to vote, dude. Jeez. Well, now that's just, come on. It's a great weird. song. All right. All right, fine. So that's it. So I lost again, but I'm going to change it around this time. I'm, I've done my homework. I've done my scouting. I'm ready to go. So I picked the album. I picked Let It Bleed. So I guess that means you get to go first and you get to take Monkey Man. There is absolutely zero doubt that I am taking Gimme Shelter as my number one pick. It is the only There's choice. only one. Gimme Shelter is on my personal top 10 songs of all time. So um, certainly you are getting the best song on the album. One of the best songs of all time. So congratulations. I'm going to go with uh, the Magnum Opus. Is that, yep. is that the Magnum phrase? Opus. Uh, you can't always get what you want. All right. Um, I am going to go with Monkey Man. I'm going to stay true to myself and pick the song that I love. You know, with your track record of destroying me, it's wise of you to stay true to yourself. So good. Congratulations. Thank you for doing that. I'm going to take Country Honk, which I just adore. Yeah, it's a great pick. That was my only other possible choice there. You got a great song. You know what was interesting was like just reading some uh, reviews on this album. A number of folks don't like this and say that, oh, you know, it's a good thing they did Honky Tonk Women because it's so much better. I just don't I, get that at all. Wrong. Yeah, I've read the same reviews and I just don't get it. It's yeah. the better song. Oof, tough decision. Um, I'm going to go with Keith. Yeah. I'll go with You Got the Silver. That was next on my list. I was hoping it would slide to me. I'm going to go with Let It Bleed. Ah, very nice. I, I'll i be honest with you. This song has grown on me over the past couple of weeks the more I listen to this album, and it's really quite good. Yeah, it's an excellent song. I am going to go with Love in Vain, and I am very happy to have that. Yeah. Very nice. And I'm going to go with Midnight really? Rambler. Oh, my goodness. I'm yep. surprised. I didn't think you would go with that. I'm really surprised. Mm -hmm. Live With Me lasted. So, folks, does Bill 
go four and O and just continue his run of dominance. So let's just recap. Probably <laughs> at number one, give me shelter. Yeah. At number three, Monkey Man. At number five, you got the silver. At number seven, Love in Vain. And at number nine, Live With Me. Those are my picks for this week. And, and for me, I've got You Can't Always Get What You Want leading off, Country Honk next, followed by Let It Bleed, and then Midnight Rambler. Short album, just nine tracks. It's short, but powerful. Indeed. So, final thoughts, Bill. So this has been an album that I keep going back to. It is an all-time great. And for me... I am now hooked on the early stones. I'm hooked on the blues and the rock and roll vibe that they have in the early years. Just a spectacular band. There's a reason why they're called the greatest rock and roll band of all time. And this album really showcases that. Yeah. So this album is making me revisit or maybe visit for the first time, really the Rolling Stones. As as I mentioned earlier, I kind of just had a, block against them it was the classic are you a beatles guy or a stones guy and i just had decided i was a beatles guy but this album is making me reconsider that at least a little bit so and and for me tony the thing about this project is really that i don't have to be a beatles guy or a stones guy anymore i'm a music guy and i can just enjoy the music mm -hmm. and the differences in the music so that's really what i'm learning along the way so why don't you tell us this whole project is you listening to the 500. That's right, 500. 500 albums, yes. Top 500 albums of all time. And and folks, he's not just listening to them like in the background while he's doing Peloton. He's he's doing a deep listen. And where does this one rank in your personal ranking? So for me, this is my number two album of all time. And I really, really considered it being number one. It's just a phenomenal album. Well, I after listening to it, you know, 20, 30 times over the past couple of weeks, I can't say that you're off base. So this is no Captain Beefheart. This is no Captain Beefheart. All right, folks. Well, that wraps up this show. And thank you for joining us. We hope that you'll join us next week when we do what album? We're going to be doing Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band by a group by the called The Beatles. <laughs> Have you heard of them? Oh, next week is going to be something special, Tone. <laughs> All right, folks. So thanks a lot, and we'll talk to you next week. Thanks, everybody. Bye.